Last week, um, I read a brief devotional thought from Landon Saunders. You may not know Brother Saunders. Um, I think originally from Texas, that's when I first came in contact with him. But anyway, uh, Landon had written a very brief thought that I receive a weekly devotional thought from him. Devotional thought, well-known maxim, a truism, that reads, after much suffering, the tree must bear fruit. After much suffering, the tree must bear fruit. Now, everyone here in the sound of my voice, both here in this tabernacle and this tent out here, and those of you listening online, every one of us realize that we are slowly emerging. We are emerging from, um, from something that many have called the new normal. I have no idea what that means, the new normal. I don't believe closing schools and churches and and sporting events and wearing masks is the new normal. But I do know this, church. I know that when tragedy occurs, is this, is this cutting out too? Okay. When, when tragedy occurs, there will be changes. We will be different people than we were before the tragedy. If the tragedy is individually, if, 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 it's, if it's my own tragedy, I cannot come from the tragedy the same person that I was when I entered it. If it's collectively as the body of Christ, the church here at Antioch, uh, if it's the state, if it's the nation, if it's global, regardless um, what the tragedy may be, and I'm making reference now to this, to the pandemic, we will not come from this, and we are not coming from it, the very same people that we were when it all started. After much suffering, the tree must bear fruit. But with every tragedy comes a change, and I'm absolutely convinced of this, this to be a good change if my life is to be different based on the pandemic or no matter what it's based on before. If my life is different, then it begins within me. And when it begins within me, the fruit that we want to bear as God's children is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that's what I thought of. This is my life. mind went to the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, last Sunday was what Christendom calls Palm Sunday, and we use that text from the Holy Bible, from the Gospels, when Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem to the, to the um, praises of the people who had thrown palm branches and, and, and tossed their garments there on the ground before him, and they were really reciting Zechariah 9 and verse 9, a, a Hosanna, it's a Hebrew word, meaning Savior, Rescuer, and they were chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's quickly the cries, the, the praises, quickly uh, turned later on in the course of the week. We know that Monday through Thursday of Olives, uh, Thursday came, what we call, um, that's when, you know, the scriptures indicate that they celebrated the Passover early, 
in the upper room of a nameless friend, probably the house of Mary, Acts 12, the mother of John, who was called Mark. And so they're celebrating the Passover early. Stay with me, church. We're going to get to the glorious Sunday here in just a moment. But that's the moment on Thursday night when Jesus took the bread out of its Passover context and he broke it, and he said, all of you, for this is the body broken for you. And then he took the cup, the third cup. There were four for Passover. He takes the cup of blessing, and he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. They sing a hymn. They, they then go out to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there, Jesus, there are only 11 apostles now, and Judas is already in the city of Jerusalem uh, getting ready to betray our Lord. So 11 of the 12 go to the garden, eight of the, eight of the 11 stay on the outer gate, and his three closest friends, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and, uh, and the apostle Peter, go into the inner garden, and there Jesus prays. He says, my soul is troubled. You've read the text. He, he talks about how he wishes the Lord, the Father, would remove this cup from him, yet he realizes, Father, your will be done, not mine. He's then arrested early Friday morning. He goes through a mockery of a trial. He is uh, tortured, spit upon, made to bear his own cross to Golgotha, and there he's crucified the, the, on the... He's Three o'clock in the afternoon on that Friday, Jesus breathed his last. His body was then taken off the cross. We'll talk about the soldiers being there in just a moment. But his, his body was taken off the cross. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea had gotten permission from Pilate, who summoned the centurion to make sure he was dead. Body removed. He, is, uh, he and Nicodemus, Joseph and Nicodemus, take 80 pounds of spices, very... Uh, expensive spices, and there they anoint his body. They wrap him in a linen cloth, strips of cloth, and then over his face is the napkin that, that the Jewish custom required. They place him in a tomb that was clearly uh, no one had ever been in before. It was freshly cut, hewn out of solid rock. Our Lord is placed on the tomb. They're in the tomb. And then the great uh, stone, no doubt, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and several of their servants, I'm sure, rolled the great stone. It was sealed by Pilate himself, by, the, by his authorities there, and guards were placed at the, at the tomb entrance. Now, that leads us up to Sunday morning. On Saturday, by the way, what Luke records about Saturday, all he says is, on the Sabbath, they rested. So you've got Sunday before, Monday through Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, on the Sabbath, they rested, and then the glorious day. If you'd advance the slide for me, I'd appreciate it. We're going to read this. I can't read it back there, so I'm going to read it in the text, and hopefully I can, well, you just advance the slides for me, all right? <laughs> all I see is a thumbs up. That's good. Listen to the word of the Lord. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they, by the way, I'm going to break here, just they would be Mary of Magdala, Mary the mother of James and Salome. They went to the tomb, taking the 
when they entered, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Just a very brief aside, um, and I've recently for 2,000 years, but, but I hadn't read about it. But I was reading some church history, and apparently um, there's a legend in the early church, going back to the early second century, when there was one of the, one of the church's uh, leaders, a um, godly Christian man uh, in, in Palestine, was going to be uh, burned at the stake to be martyred for the Lord, for his faith in Christ. As they were tying him to the stake, the executioner asked, do you have anything you want to say? And according to church history, all he uh, said was, he shouted, he is risen. And apparently there were fellow believers in there watching this, and in the hills surrounding they were watching this, this, uh, this execution, and they replied in this sort of uh, antiphonal way in this, in this reading, they said, he has risen indeed. And apparently from that moment forward, many of the churches began to adopt this incredible greeting. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Church, I would like to share three facts. If you'll move the next slide, please. I would like to share three facts with you this morning. Three facts clearly prove that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed raised from the dead. The first is the empty tomb. Next slide, if you will. Through the whole thing, but what you're looking at there on the screen is the gravestone of my great-great-great-great-grandfather, Cornelius Whittington, who's fought in the Revolutionary War. County, Mississippi. We did this a few years ago, you and mom and Tracy and me. So the four of us went to Amite County because there we have nine generations of Whittington's buried, including Cornelius. Now, as I was walking around this relatively small cemetery, I actually thought of the Garden Cemetery outside of Jerusalem. Now, from what I've understood, the size of the cemetery of years ago was about the same size that I was looking at. But I thought, that's as far as the similarities go. They don't go any further than that. Cornelius, my great-great-great-great-grandfather, was probably dug about six foot in the ground. His body was there. And if I were to go, if the Whittington family, for whatever reason, felt like they needed to exhume the body of either Cornelius or any of our, any of our ancestors, if the descendants felt that way, then... Um, that's what we would do. We would go down, we would exhume the body, we would know, you know, have, have some forensic experts, and they would look at it and say, yeah, yeah, there's a body there, here are the bones, we can see it. 
But I want you to know, I want to remind you that even though the world might consider it a fact, it is, there is absolutely no doubt that the tomb was empty. Now, how do we know that? We know that because everyone there, everyone knew that Jesus of Nazareth was dead. They all knew that. The Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross, they knew that. Mary, his mother, when he took his last breath and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, she knew that. John, his, his, his disciple, John the son of Zebedee, he knew that. Everyone present knew that. That's why the soldiers, when they went to break the legs to hasten death, they come to Jesus, and these are experienced executioners. And they see, indeed, and no doubt the centurion who was right there was also their boss, and he had been around a lot longer than these, probably these private Roman soldiers were, and so no legs were broken. It fulfilled the prophecy. What the one soldier did is he took a spear and he thrust it in his side. Some say either in the heart or close to the heart because blood and water came out. Hypovolemia, I've been told, sure sign of death. Blood and water came out. So you've got Jesus on the cross who is clearly dead. Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Christ and a member of the great high council, the Sanhedrin, went to Pilate's body because the Sabbath was coming, sunset was near, and, and, and um, Joseph understood that he must take the body, place it in his own tomb, and so he goes to Pilate. Pilate, what does Pilate do? Pilate calls for the centurion. He doesn't trust Joseph. He calls his centurion who was there on scene. And so dead. And the centurion says, yes, yes. He implies he is dead. And then Pilate gives Joseph the authority to remove the body. He takes the body down, and he and Nicodemus, another member of the great Sanhedrin, uh, another very wealthy person, purchase 80 pounds of spices. They anoint the body. We're talking about a dead body, not one who is simply, you know, unconscious, no breath, no heartbeat. He's gone. The body is dead no less dead than my great-great-great-grandfather Cornelius was when they put him in the ground. And so they anoint the body, they wrap the body, they place the body on the bier uh, inside the tomb, and they take the great stone. No doubt many servants roll the stone. Um, they knew he was dead. The, the Jewish authorities knew he was dead. That's why they go to Pilate, and they say, they say, Governor, we want you to seal the tomb with your own seal. We want Roman guards placed at the tomb. And Pilate agrees. So the stone is rolled. It's sealed. Uh, these Roman soldiers are all around it. They knew he was dead. The women knew he was dead. Mary of Magdala, Mary the mother of James, Salome, who was the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, they knew he was dead. That's why, you know, that's why on a Sunday morning they were carrying spices to the tomb. The, the apostles knew he was dead. In fact, whenever Mary Magdalene told them what was going on, they thought it was an idle tale, Luke 24 and verse 5. An idle tale. They knew he was dead. 
Everyone knew that Jesus of Nazareth was dead. No one expected him to be alive. No one. Not his closest disciples, not his mother, not the women, not, not the guards, not the centurion, not Pilate, and not the Jewish authorities. And I'm telling you, church, we need to understand that. This was not some sort of moment when, oh, the tomb is empty, we thought it would be. Not at all. They were not only hiding, they were afraid because they were hiding because they were afraid, but they simply did not believe, even after they discovered the tomb was empty. The Bible says the apostles thought it was some idle tale. Now, that's the first fact. The second fact, if you'll move the slide, the second fact is that the second Eyewitnesses. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8? He says, I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel in which you stand, uh, by which you received, by which you are saved, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the Scripture. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to more than 500 brethren at one time. Then he appeared to James and all of the church leaders, all of the apostles. And then last of all, as one untimely born, Paul writes, he appeared to me. Now, church, as a reminder to those of us in Christ who know that Jesus indeed was raised from the dead, everyone Then Mary of Magdala, early on that Sunday morning, met Jesus alive from the dead, and they talked with each other. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus met Jesus alive from the dead. They held a conversation. They sat down at their house and they broke bread, and that's when they realized this is the risen Lord. He was gone. The apostles thought Jesus had clearly died and was buried and something awry had taken place because the tomb was empty. And then they met Jesus. Five hundred at one time. But they were willing to die for it, not just a simple death. No one dies for a lie, not intentionally. You may die for your faith, and indeed your faith may not be true. Speaking of the pagan religions and those willing to die for their faith, Keep in mind that the apostles didn't die for their faith. They 
Since I can't read that, I want to make sure that I, I think I've got them in the Bible here somewhere. Yeah. The only one we have recorded in Scripture, of course, is James, the son of Zebedee in Acts chapter 12, who died by the hands of King Herod. He could have recanted and saved his life, but he didn't. Why? Because he saw the risen Lord with his own eyes. Peter, church history. By the way, all of these are in early church history. Read the historians. You can't read much about early church history without realizing this is replete, not in one place or two or three, but in many different writings. We hear where the apostles died for, their, for the fact that they knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Peter was crucified in Rome. Philip crucified in Asia. Uh, Andrew crucified in Achaia. Bartholomew in Armenia, Matthew in Ethiopia, Thomas in Persia, James was stoned in Syria, Thaddeus was shot with arrows in Persia, Simon the, the, the uh, zealot was sawn in two in Persia, Matthias, the one who took Judas's place at the Caspian Sea, he was crucified, and of course the great apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome according to church history. The empty tomb eyewitnesses, and the fact that they were willing to die for the truth. Now, what do we do with the message? I mean, in the end, what do we do with it? Well, Romans... very quickly as I offer the invitation, the gospel of Jesus, I want to take us back to the time and that glorious day of Pentecost, 50 days after, after the resurrection, 10 days after our Lord ascended into heaven there from Bethany in Acts chapter 2. What does Peter preach? What's the first through four, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on that third day. That's the gospel. So what do we do with it? Well, the same thing that they did with it on Pentecost. And these words, you know them for those of you who are regular uh, attenders on Sunday and Bible students, but we can never hear it enough because really, Whenever our Lord offers the invitation, and of all days, this could be the day, whenever everybody here, those of us who know Christ, need to rededicate ourselves to Him and to the Lord's church, those who do not know Christ need to ask the same question the Jews ask on Pentecost there in Jerusalem. Peter's preaching the gospel sermon. What does he preach? He preaches Jesus, who died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. Why? Because that's the saving message. Now, after he shares this very brief message, then they believed him. Keep in mind, this is the, this is the, the holy day of Passover. There were thousands of people listening, far more than those of you right here this morning. Thousands. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Upon hearing this, verse 37, they were pricked in their heart, cut to the quick. 
their heart hurt. And so they ask the question. It's a great question. It's the same question we've all asked or we need to ask. What do we do? And Peter replied, you need to repent. You need to change your ways. You can't keep going. Why? He must bear fruit. Every tragedy changes a person. And the moment we hear of tragedy, we make a change. And that's what they did. What do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of, of, of your sins and for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises to you. to him. And then the Bible clearly says that Peter said, or that as Luke writes, he's talking about Peter, and he said, and he testified with many other words and exhorted them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. If you do not know Christ, if you've never made the good confession, if you've never until this moment believed in your heart that God, that God raised him from the dead, that's your question. It's what you need to ask. What do we do? What do I do? And let the Lord reply. Let the Lord respond. He simply responds by saying, you really need to know who I am. You need to receive me as your Lord and Savior. You need to repent and be baptized and receive the gift of the Spirit that I'm willing to give you. And for those of us who have already done that in yesteryear, we're not off the hook here. Tragedy has hit us too. And we also need to make a change. And our change needs to be, Lord, rededicate us. You know, change us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, you know, and self-control. You need to make a change. And so this morning, I can't think of a better time for everyone in the sound of my voice, pricked by the Spirit of God, to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ. And all the church must say, Amen. I'd, I'd like to invite the elders to come forth very quickly. Let them stand in front of you, our shepherds. And I do encourage every person here 